Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pilgrim Devotion. I am your host, Michael Howard. I'm the senior pastor of Seaford Baptist Church. This is a podcast for anyone inside or outside of Seaford Baptist Church, anyone who's living the pilgrim life, representing the kingdom of God in the kingdom of man. And I'm so glad that you are back, that the Salem Witch Trials episode did not scare you off forever, that you have returned. And I'm excited about what we are doing this week. We are talking about one of my favorite subjects, Reformed Theology. We are only one week away from Reformation Day 2020. Three, uh, is it important for us to celebrate Reformation Day? I think it is. I think it is. Uh, whether you would call yourself a Calvinist or not, I think it's important that you uh, look at October 31st as a meaningful day on your calendar. I'll explain why as we go. Uh, and what you're going to hear me say here in just a little bit is that Reformed theology and the Protestant Reformation is a whole lot bigger than just Calvinism, right? And so I think all Protestants need to look at what took place on October 31st, 1517 in Wittenberg and say that was an important day for my faith. That was an important day in the history of the church. And for all intents and purposes, that is the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. When Luther took the 95 Theses, he nailed them to the church door there in Wittenberg. That is, uh, you know, there, there were events before and after that are key and that are crucial when it comes to understanding the Protestant Reformation, when it comes to moving the Protestant Reformation along. But when pop culture and when pop history and, and when the world looks at the Protestant Reformation, they look at October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, hammer in hand. They look at that as really the beginning of uh, the Reformation. So I think it is appropriate for us to talk about it. I want to talk about today what is Reformed theology, uh, walk through that a little bit, walk through how I came into contact with it, how I am, or, or, or really how I became convinced of it, what were the most convincing arguments, and yeah, just go from there. I don't I don't seek to be polemic in this or really to argue with Arminians in this or to put Arminians down or or anyone who would say that they kind of claim some sort of middle ground. If you're a Molinist listening to this, wherever you land when it comes to predestination and election and God's eternal saving purposes, uh, I don't I don't come seeking to fight. No torches in my hand, no sword in my hand. Really just want to tell my story uh, because I would say that in my 12 years of being here at Seaford, there's no question that I've been asked more regarding my life, my story, theology. Uh, I, I would There might be a, a couple of questions. There's very few questions I've been asked more than, how'd you become a Calvinist? How did you become convinced of Calvinism? How did you become convinced of the of Reformed theology? What is Reformed theology? Those sorts of questions I've probably gotten more than any other uh, during my time here at Seaford. And so I thought that this would be a good time to talk about those things in podcast form with Reformation Day approaching. You might do other things on that day. I know that uh, as Reformation Day comes, you also might dress your kids up in costumes and go collect candy. And that's that's just fine. That's just fine. At, at, at least for me. I, I'm not going to judge you harshly on that. I know that there's different views among Christians about Halloween and should we be going door to door? Should we not be going door to door? Um, we can do. We, we can save that maybe for another episode. Maybe that's next year's Reformation Day episode. Uh, but for whatever you may do next Tuesday, uh, I hope that this podcast will 
encourage you to stop and just really think about Luther, really think about the Protestant Reformation, the recovery of the Christian faith during that time, the true Christian faith, and just how important it is to us as Christian people, as Protestant people, as Baptist people. So with that said, what is Reformed theology? What is it? What is Reformed theology? Um, I'm using, by the way, an article from Ligonier that I found to be really helpful to kind of uh, be a guide as I talk through this first part of the podcast. But at the most basic level, Reformed theology refers to the theology that comes out of the Protestant Reformation, the theology that flows out of the Protestant Reformation. My, my boy Stephen Lawson, who I love, one of my favorite preachers, he says, well, Reformed theology is just Bible. <laughs> That's what he says. And uh, I don't want to start things, again, uh, in, on, a, on a polemical foot here or an antagonistic foot, so uh, I'll just leave that there. But Really, when we're talking about Reformed theology, we're talking about what came out of the Protestant Reformation theologically. So the Reformers are the ones that rejected the Roman Catholic teaching on the nature of justification, the nature of saving faith. They rejected the idea that it is Jesus plus something, that it's faith in Christ plus works that you do uh, that ultimately will result in eternal life. They certainly rejected the idea that you could buy indulgences that would somehow earn you or someone else uh, a, a get-out-of-jail-free card when it came to purgatory, anything like that. They rejected all of that. They re and, and a lot of those teachings came about because the Roman Catholic Church was saying, well, even though this stuff's not in Scripture, the historical and, and traditional teachings of the Church, they have just as so much authority as, as Scripture. And in fact, the Pope uh, has uh, the authority to tell everybody what Scripture means and to even say things that aren't scriptural uh, are true, Right. And so the Reformers rejected that as well. They said, no, we reject papal authority. Uh, the Bible alone has the, uh, the, the place of final authority in the lives of Christians on all matters. Uh, and then they rejected the Roman Catholic uh, theology uh, regarding you know, the Lord's Supper, uh, regarding a lot of you know, worship and what you do when the church gathers. And, and so when we're talking about Reformed theology, we're talking about all of that. We're talking about everything that came out of the teachings of Luther and Zwingli and Calvin as they are reacting against that Roman Catholic teaching. It's much bigger than just the five points of Calvinism. And yet, when we say Reformed theology in today's day and age, most, most people don't even really think of like the history of the Protestant Reformation and the theology that's flowing out of the Reformers. They just think the five points of Calvinism, which uh, is is really unfortunate because not only are you missing out on a historical understanding of the Reformation, but you are shrinking down really the size of Reformed theology, and you're trying to just take one part of it and say that this is the whole of it, when really it's not. It's just one part of it. One part of Reformed theology is understanding how God goes about saving us. So, if we were going to start with a group of five core beliefs and talking about Reformed theology, we should not talk about the tulip first and foremost, but about the five solas. The five solas of the Reformation are sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, sola Christus, and soli deo gloria. Sola is the Latin word for only or alone, 
And so when we say sola scriptura, we're saying that scripture alone has that place of final authority in discussions of doctrine, in discussions of worship, church, all matters uh, of, of godliness, salvation, discipleship, everything in the life of a believer, certainly when it comes to how one is saved. And so only God's word is sufficient to reveal these things to us. And what it reveals to us is the gracious nature of salvation, that we're saved by God's grace alone, and that that salvation is received by faith alone, sola fide, and that salvation comes to us in Christ alone, right? Solus Christus. And all of this is to the glory of God alone, soli deo gloria. So Reformed theology then understands all of life in terms of the Bible being our sole authority and all of life being lived to the glory of God. To be Reformed in your thinking is to be God-centered in your thinking, to be passionate about the glory of God in your thinking, to be passionate about God getting the glory from beginning to end for our salvation, for our existence, for everything. And so, yes, the five points of Calvinism are a part of Reformed theology, but it's not the whole of Reformed theology. Uh, beyond the five solas, we could also say that to be Reformed is to understand that God is working out his saving purposes toward his people in covenants, and that he has done this throughout the scriptures. He's done this throughout redemptive history, that we see his covenant of works with Adam that Adam failed in. We see the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the promised new covenant. And so we understand that God is working out his saving purposes toward his people in covenants. And then we want to be confessional as Reformed people, uh, meaning that we want to uh, take everything that we believed in terms of Reformed theology and express it in a confession of faith. So if you're going to be Reformed, you're pretty much going to be confessional. Um, and some of the major confessions would be the Belgic Confession, the, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Canons of Dort. Those are called the three forms of unity. The Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, which also has its own catechisms. And so there's also the... Um, the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession. It's very important that I mention that. And the reason I mention that is because it's a cornerstone confession for our denomination. The original uh, signatures for the Southern Baptist Convention, those who initially joined, all of them uh, subscribed to some version of the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession. I don't agree with every word of the 1689, but it is the confession that probably most represents the Reformed theology that I subscribe to. So, uh, yeah, that is a little bit of a crash course overview on Reformed theology. Of course, you can look at Calvinism itself, though, and start to get down into that, start to get into the tulip, uh, what a lot of people think of when they think of Reformed theology. Truly, the tulip is is, is just one part of it, right? It, it is just our understanding of how God goes about saving his people, how he has revealed his saving acts in all of time, from before time, in time, and, and in, in eternity future, how he, he's showing us his saving acts and how he, he exercises uh, his saving arm for his people. 
and John Calvin's name has been attached to it because Calvin took really the teachings of Augustine and he carried them out and he wrote brilliantly about them. A lot of people say that if you look at the two highest peaks of Christian theology, it would be Augustine and John Calvin. And so Calvin took the teachings of Augustine and he carried them out to their logical conclusions and he certainly provided us with so much uh, brilliant uh, explanation and commentary uh, when it comes to the scriptures and how God saves, but the man himself would be appalled to know that his name has been attached to really just the doctrines of grace, right? Just like how we understand God goes about saving people with his grace, he would be appalled to know his name has been attached to this. And we know that because when he died, he requested that he would be buried in an unmarked grave because he didn't want anybody to know where he was because he said, they'll venerate me. If you, if you leave me in a grave with my name on it, they'll come and try to make a saint out of me. So no, don't let anybody know where I'm buried. So we don't know where he was buried. And I have to think that he would be appalled to know that the doctrines of grace have been attached to his name in this way. And yet they have been. And so Calvinism uh, is a word that you hear. Reformed theology is a term that you hear. Let's talk it out a little bit. The five points of the tulip, okay, the five points of the tulip would be total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and then the perseverance of the saints. When you go through these five points, I think that I, I would argue they stand and fall together. Not everybody would agree. My, my brother, Andrew Fuller, a uh, great Baptist of the past, he argued that th the third point, limited atonement, uh, is not true, but he argued for all of the other four points. So he was called a four-point Calvinist. Those that, uh, that, that taught his theology were called Fullerites uh, back in that time. And there's plenty of people today, plenty of Fullerites running around today in the Southern Baptist Church. We probably have Fullerites right here in our own church at uh, Seaford Baptist, or if you go to another church, you probably have a Fullerite in your church. It's pretty common to find, but I would argue these things stand and fall together. I think they're very much connected. When we talk about total depravity, some people prefer the term total inability, but what we're talking about is how sin poisons human beings. And... When sin entered into the world, it brought death with it, right? Adam chose to reject God, and through Adam's sin, we all fell. He was our federal head. He was our representative. And so when Adam sinned and fell, we sinned in him, and we fell with him, and Humanity, in falling into sin, becomes totally depraved, meaning that sin has so distorted us that if we are separated from God's grace, which we are because of sin, that we will always love other things more than we love God. Our minds, our bodies, uh, our emotions, our affections, every part of us is just soaked by sin. We cannot escape it on our own. We are dead in it, and we have stone hearts that are totally unable to respond to God, okay? And the reason I believe that has a lot to do with the will and the will being in bondage, but we'll come back to that 
in just a little bit. So if everybody's totally depraved, okay, and there is nothing that they can do to save themselves because anything they do is really an act that is rooted in their dead sinfulness, right? Um, well, then they need God to do something to save them. And praise God that in eternity past, he unconditionally elected some to salvation, which is, uh, as Ligonier.org says, part of God's solution to our total depravity. We fall into sin. That does not surprise God. God knows history and writes the end from the beginning, Scripture tells us in Isaiah chapter 46. And so God, knowing the end from the beginning, knows that we would fall into sin, and he has a plan to save us. He decided in this plan to set his saving love on his people, choosing to redeem them, choosing to adopt them, choosing to make them his children. And it is not because of anything good that they have done. That's what Romans 9 shows us. It's not because of any merit in them. His saving love, it's not based on how smart we are. It's not based on how uh, how how good we are morally. It's not based on any sort of standing we have in this world. He loves us not because you are more righteous than other people on your own. No, you're a sinner just like everybody else. If you are a Christian, he chose to love you because he loves you. He based his choice on his free, saving love that he has chosen to pour out on you. It's not because you're better than others. It's just because he chose to love you. That's unconditional election. This took place in eternity past, before time. Names were written down in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about him unconditionally electing some to salvation. Meaning then when he goes to the cross and he dies on the cross for sinners, he does not die for the whole world, making salvation possible for everyone, but not definite for anyone. Instead, he goes to the cross, stretches out his arms, and he dies, taking the names of those who have been written down in the Lamb's book of life. He takes those names to the cross, and he dies for them, and he makes salvation definite for that group of people, which is why I think definite atonement or particular redemption is a much better way to explain the L of the tulip. So we have total depravity, unconditional election. We have limited atonement. And then the fourth point of the five points of Calvinism would be what we call irresistible grace. That's the I in the tulip. And this is really talking about God's power to save in salvation. And, and particularly the power of his charity, the power of his love to redeem you in salvation. There was a picture when I was growing up of, of Jesus... And there was like a door, and on the on the outside of the door, there was there's no handle to go in. There's only a handle on the inside of the door, and people would say, "Well, that's because you have to open the door and you have to let him in." And it's almost like actually like the song. Um, oh, what is the song? I'm now I'm blanking out. Um, 
come home, come home. Uh, somewhere our worship pastor, Ben Little, is listening to this. He's screaming. When you listen to a podcast and the host is trying to think of something and you know the answer, it's the closest thing you'll ever come to feeling like a ghost. <laughs> You're like screaming, this is the answer. Um, I can't believe I can't think of this. The Gettys did an amazing version of it with Vince Gill uh, recently. Uh, come home, come home, all ye... Who are weary, come home. Softly and tenderly, that's it. Oh my goodness, I could not remember it. Softly and tenderly. I actually like that song, but there is like this, this idea of Jesus standing outside the door and he wishes he could come in, but he can't. And there's Jesus looking on the portals and he's waiting and watching and just wishing that you would just come home. And I think that we gotta be careful with that, right? As if Jesus is powerless to take territory that he desires to be his as Lord. That's my problem with that picture. Do I believe that Jesus, in his sovereign grace, eagerly awaits sinners to come home? Of course, that's the heart that's revealed in the scriptures, right? That he leaves the 99 and he goes to get the one. We know that is true of him. However, he's not powerless. On July 14th, 1999, it was time to save me. And he kicked the door in and he took what was his. And he plundered the house of the strong man. And he took Michael Howard as his own. I believe that. My mother was saved at church. We got her to come to church. Uh, my dad was a Christian. I was seeking the Lord. My mother really wanted nothing to do with it. But we got her to come to church on Easter uh, so my dad had been a Christian for like six months, uh, October 98, Easter 99, my mom comes to Christ, she is in the service, she doesn't even like get through the, the, the sermon, I don't even think she could tell you what the sermon was about, Spirit of God fell on her, Jesus said, Debbie Howard is mine now, I will be taking her now, this is the time that I have appointed and she is mine now. And she responds to his grace in faith. I think that's where some people don't understand about irresistible grace, is they think that God's going to much work, and you're dead, and you're just laying there, and then he saves you, and you're like, well, I mean, I was just going to stay dead, but I guess I'll serve him. No. Irresistible grace is that God opens your eyes to the beauty of Jesus Christ, right? Because God has come to us in a person. And so he opened your eyes to the beauty of the person of Jesus Christ. And once you see him, you go, oh, I want it all. I want him. I want him. I want him now. I want to follow him. I want his salvation. I want his peace. I want everything. I want it now. And you respond in faith to his irresistible grace. And those who do that will be saints for all of eternity. You will not stop being a saint. He will preserve you. He will preserve you. He never stops loving his people. All that the Father has given to Jesus, Jesus will not lose a single one of them. You don't lose your salvation. If you could, you would have already lost it. Uh, and so God predestines for salvation. God calls people to be saved. God is the one that regenerates the heart. God is the one that justifies. God is the one that sanctifies. God is the one that glorifies. And that is why the Bible calls him the author and the finisher of our faith. That which he begins in terms of a good work, he's going to bring it to completion.
And so we rejoice in these things. These, these, are, these are the glorious doctrines of grace. These are not things that we should run from. These are not things that we should be intimidated by. And these are not things we should be ashamed to talk about. That being said, if you come to believe in them, you might want to take it easy for a little bit because I've seen people just get way too excited about this stuff and they start treating Calvinism like some sort of second salvation and they're running around, are you a Calvinist? You need to be a Calvinist. You need to repent of your sins and become a Calvinist, accept John Calvin in your heart. I mean, settle down, folks, right? Uh, just as the Lord is gracious to save in his time, I believe that he is gracious to sanctify in his time. And while it is true that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, part of the fear and trembling is recognizing that as I'm learning great and wonderful truths about God, I should stay humble and maybe not even talk about them until I'm ready to be able to express them in a way that is humble. And that when I am out talking about these things, I'm still evangelizing ultimately for what? For people to be saved and for people to be maturing in Christ, not for people to sign up for a theological system that I've signed up for. And so I just think we got to be careful about that. And by the way, that's not just Calvinists, that's not just Reformed folks, dispensationalists, when they finally feel like they understand uh, everything regarding the millennial kingdom and, and everything that's going to happen with Israel and, and, and the 70th week of Daniel, and oh my goodness, man, like... You know, like sometimes they're they're doing the same thing. They're walking around with that chart out. And they're like, have you seen this? Have you seen this? Have you seen what's going on in Israel? Have you read this in the newspaper? Right? I, I just think that anytime that we start to set Christ crucified and resurrected to the side so that we can talk about some sort of theological point or theological system, even to the detriment of preaching the gospel, right? That, that's when we're going wrong. And so uh, people call it cage stage. It's like you need to be caged up for a little bit until you're ready to talk to people about this in a humble way where you keep the gospel primary. That's probably true. That's probably true. If you met me when I first came to believe this stuff in seminary, because I started to dabble in 2005, and I'm going to get into that here in a moment, but I started to dabble in 2005, and it was really, though, when I got to seminary, uh, because I went to Liberty, where it was not a Reformed seminary. You were not getting very many teachers who had a Calvinistic perspective. I was hearing the 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 um, Arminian and, and non-Reformed teaching and responses on the regular in the classroom. That's really where I became convinced of Reformed theology, was hearing the opposite arguments. I was like, I don't think this adds up. And so I became more convinced of Reformed theology, convictions deepened, and then I would say that my last few months on campus, because I spent my last year of seminary off campus, my last few months on campus, I was uh, I, I was probably not a fun person to be around when these sorts of things came up. I wasn't great at listening to people. I wanted to just get my next point out. Uh, I don't know that the gospel was primary in the way that I was speaking. I was looking to win debates and not stir hearts to rejoice in the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son, and the glory of the Spirit. I, I just think this can go so, so poorly if you let it. So be careful, brother and sister, 
whatever you believe about Reformed theology and how God saves or whatever you believe about the end times or whatever you have that temptation to go cage stage in, just, just be careful. Keep the gospel primary and talk about these things from a place of humility. So, uh, yeah, that, that is really uh, the Reformed theology in a nutshell. Um, again, when we're talking about Reformed theology, it is, it's much bigger than just the five points of Calvinism. You got to talk about the five solas. You got to talk about the uh, how, how central covenants are to the way that God is going about saving his people and expressing his saving purposes. And uh, you got to talk about being confessional, right? The five points of Calvinism are just a part of that, really a part of God's uh, covenant salvation of his people and, and how we understand that. It's just a part of it. It's not the whole thing. If you want to look into understanding more about Reformed theology as I wrap up this episode, uh, I'm going to do a part two that will run next week, the actual week of uh, the Protestant Reformation. Um, well, not the actual week of the Reformation. <laughs> it's going to be a busy week next week. We're going to run the whole Reformation back. No, the actual week of, of the anniversary, uh, 506th anniversary of the Protestant uh, Reformation. Um yeah, well, I'll talk more about kind of how I came to believe it and the 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 arguments for Reformed theology I'm most convinced by. But just some books, if you're wanting to go deeper on this, uh, I'm not going to recommend a ton of books to you because I don't want to overwhelm you. Uh, I'm just going to recommend two of them to you. If you want something that is really uh, an entry-level sort of book, a crash course on Reformed theology in about 200 pages, Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul. Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul. Know God's perfect plan for his glory and his children. Uh, that's a big one for me, uh, and I'll talk about that more in next week's episode. And then the other one that I am actually working through as we speak, it is a little bit dense, uh, and certainly it's it was written, um, gosh, I'm not sure when it was, 1933? Well, give me one second, let me look. 1932, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination by Lorraine Botner. Uh, I highly, highly recommend it. It's so good. I'm taking my time working through it, but it's really good. Even if you are, are not Reformed, you don't think you'll ever be Reformed, and you just really want to understand Reformed doctrine, I would, I would recommend this book to you, if nothing else, because he does such a great job of like... Uh, so, for example, in the chapter 5, The Providence of God... Uh, it's like a two or three page chapter, and then the last few pages at the end, it's just scripture proofs. The providence of God uh, in the physical world, scripture. Providence of God in the animal uh, kingdom, scripture. Providence of God in the nations, scripture. Providence of God in individual men, scripture. Free acts of men, scripture. Sinful acts of men, scripture. I mean, he's just got so many scripture references at the end of every chapter, and this is a book that I could see myself uh, keeping on hand for as long as the Lord would give me the years. I have so, so loved this book thus far. I've, I've taken it in little chunks and little bites. Um, if, if you're intimidated by the title, it's not as intimidating as the title, but it's certainly not as accessible as Chosen by God by Sproul. So that is The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination by Lorraine Botner. The other one I mentioned, Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul. And then Ligonier.org, tons of really good entry-level articles about Reformed theology, the tulip, all of those 
sorts of things. So there are some resources for you as we go. Christian, how is your soul doing? As we close up this episode, how is your soul? Like, how are you really doing, brother or sister? How is God's grace working in your life? Where are the places where you're seeing victory? You're seeing sin be overcome. You're starting to understand maybe theological things you did not understand before. You're being able to understand how to apply the word of God to your life and, and you're just growing in wisdom. How, how's this grace at work in your life? Where are you rejoicing right now? And then where do you look at the, the landscape of your life and say, I wish his grace was, was more evident there. And I wish that I was not hindering God in this area the way that I feel like I am. And if you get if you go through these questions and, and, and you say, man, I need to talk to a pastor, just reach out to us. Or if you go through these questions, go, I'm not a Christian. Please reach out to us. Connect at SeafordBaptist.com. We would love nothing more than to spend some time talking with you, uh, to spend some time uh, opening the scriptures with you, and to providing pastoral counsel for you. Every Christian should know their pastor. I believe that with all my heart. And uh, if you're a believer out there and you don't know your pastor, uh, I would encourage you to get to know your pastor. If you go to a church where you cannot know your pastor, I would say that might be a problem. And that's something that you should think about. And when I say your pastor, I'm talking about a pastor at your church. It doesn't have to be the only pastor at your church, because I know that many of you probably have lay people at your church who are carrying the title of pastor or elder. Man, you should know your pastors. And so uh, if you're out there and you're a Christian and you're listening to this and for some reason you don't have a pastor, like you just have been out of the habit of going to church, you need a pastor. We can help you with that too. We can connect you right here from Virginia with someone. Even if you're not in Virginia, we'll hook you up with a pastor in your area. We'll get in touch with them for you, uh, make the connection, talk to them, the whole thing. So yeah, get in touch with us. Connect at SeafordBaptist.com. We care about your soul. All right, until next time, keep living that pilgrim life. We'll do part two next week. Happy Reformation Day, everyone.